This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Yesterday was a big day for all of us that are space watchers and look to the stars and wonder what and what if. Well, um, we've been talking about this DART program. DART is an acronym, rather clever one at that. Essentially, what NASA was trying to do was use a vending machine-sized spaceship to divert an asteroid. It happened on the East Coast uh, Monday night around quarter after 12 p.m. Excuse me, uh, around quarter after 7 p.m. And this is some of the audio of what you heard if you were watching this live. I was at a Chinese restaurant at the time, so I had to catch up afterwards. By the way, those of you keeping track, young Carmine, remarkably well-behaved at the Chinese restaurant. That was his first experience at a Chinese restaurant. And uh, what can I say? The kid seems quite fond of Egg Foo Young. He also tried a little fried rice, although he didn't really grasp that he should wait until his mother put it on a fork or a spoon for him. He seemed to prefer to grab the individual rice himself. I guess he doesn't believe in forks. He prefers chopsticks, and he doesn't have the dexterity necessary for chopsticks yet. But! While Carmine was sleeping through my viewing of this, this was a rather impressive moment in the history of space research, space exploration. Here's some audio of NASA's YouTube page at the moment that DART makes an impact. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. Oh, we got it? Essentially, what this whole experiment is about, and they do claim that it's an experiment, what this whole experiment is about is about making sure that in the future we don't see Earth destroyed by an asteroid like so many movies, like Armageddon, like Deep Impact, like um, Don't Look Up, which uh, John Katzmatidis watched over the weekend. I was a little bummed John gave away portion of the ending of the movie. I, and again, I would never reprimand my boss or John, who's a good friend. But I, I said, John, you're supposed to say spoiler alert before you say something like that. So I'm hoping uh, that people are, who are interested in seeing it have already seen it. But uh, uh, a guy that knows a thing or two about asteroids, about space, and our efforts to protect Earth from asteroids is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Steve, it is great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me once again on the radio. Well, good morning, Frank. Always a privilege and honor to be here on the other side of midnight. And wow, what a day for space uh, exploration and space science. That, that? that is for sure. Now, first and foremost, uh, obviously our flagship station and um, a station that I am very proud to be on, WABC in New York. I heard your interview with John Katzmatidis yesterday on his show, and uh, he John made a major announcement, which is that you are joining the WABC family. What's the story? What can you tell us? Well, it's a high honor, and thank you, John Katzmatidis, for what you're doing here. But John and I, of course, over the last three years, for many people that may not know that, John's been kind enough to ask me to provide content from these subjects. And, Frank, you've been very conscious. I mean, very kind also to bring this to the audience out there. But what's supposed to happen here? With a formal agreement with WABC in New York, we're going to be providing podcasts and an area. So in the future, obviously we're proud of what we do here in the West with other radio stations, but the primo one that, hey, I grew up with as a native New Yorker, uh, WABC, will be providing content in the form of a web location and podcasts 
and hopefully continuing with you and others here on this great radio station in New York. That's great. So uh, if people want to check out your Dr. Sky blog, is the best place to do that still KTAR.com, or will you be migrating a lot of that content to WABCradio.com, or is that a question that's too premature at this point? A little premature, but what we're going to be doing is providing unique and special content, exclusive content for WABC for, for right now. Kindly, if people would go to KTAR.com here, big news talk station here in Arizona, been around for also about 100 years, and congratulations to them. But they are, of course, the Dr. Sky blog. If you go to the menu section and our existing podcast there, we're privileged and honored to be a part of doing this. As you say, being an edutainer, getting the information out there and hopefully having people say that they like this or click the like box, you know, as far as listening to this particular subject, which unfortunately in some cases we both would agree, Frank, sometimes science can be a little dry, so we're trying Mm. to put a little more horsepower into it and make it available for everybody, all ages, all people. And from what I'm hearing from you and the listeners, I think they're liking it a yeah. lot. No, I, I, w- I said before you came on that uh, my friend Tommy Barlotta, who walked in the uh, Tunnel to Towers walk with me on Saturday, he the first thing he said, he listens to the program just about every day. He says, my favorite guest by far is uh, Dr. Sky. And then he proceeds to explain to his girlfriend exactly why uh, that's the case. But enough uh, telling people how great you are. Let's prove it to them. Uh, the NASA DART probe, the g- goal was to get it to smash into an asteroid in the first de- defense, uh, in the first test of the Earth asteroid defense. What exactly was the goal here yesterday? What happened yesterday? Well, here's the backstory. Hopefully, this little impactor, which is about 1,600 pounds, that's the spacecraft. The Draco camera, for those of you that haven't seen it, YouTube has a replay of it, and NASA TV, of course, did it live. You get to see from a great distance both of these objects, and the goal, very simply, was to hit the smaller asteroid known as uh, Dimorphos, or I call it the Diddy Moon, and hopefully land right in the center of the small object, which is about 520 feet in diameter. But, Frank, I wanted to share this with the listeners. This binary asteroid system, there are not many binary asteroids out there. There are probably many more than we haven't discovered. But it's 7 million miles or so away from the Earth. So giving kudos to the space planners on this, it's like shooting a bullet, say, from New York and hitting a target in Los Angeles and still getting the prize because you hit the bullseye. That's what we hope. But the system, to describe it, there's two objects here. One is Didymos. It was an object discovered back here in 1996, actually by friends of mine at a place called Space Watch on Kitt Peak with their big telescope camera. And then the little Dimorphos was actually discovered as recently as 2003. It's 528 feet, allegedly, in diameter. Dimorphos is about 2,600 feet in diameter, and they're separated by about 3,000 feet. So if all goes well, those images, and, and I hope you got to see some of them at least as a replay, and the listeners out there, you see the object literally zooming in on first, you see the binary asteroids, and then you see the tiny little Dimorphos. But as it gets closer, this is so strange. This little object, the small impact object, is like a little rubble pile. So if you were like standing on Dimorphos, you probably could literally jump off of it, and maybe the gravity of that tiny little object wouldn't hold you down. So the, the jury's out as far as what's going to happen with this, as far as whether or not it's allegedly, this is what its goal is, to push the object out of its regular orbit. And they have cameras. Even the James Webb Telescope, I'm hearing, is going to be involved in observing this. There's also another spacecraft mission. How about this? There's so many out there called HERA. It's part of the European Space Agency's probe. It's going to hopefully go back to this asteroid in 2026. And it has two tiny little CubeSats. These are little tiny satellites, like this one, right around the spacecraft DART. It had a little tiny camera, a little CubeSat satellite, maybe the size of like a microwave oven. And it, too, has some interesting sensors and things. It's going to look and see what rubble came out of this asteroid impact. And that little one is called the Lycia Cube. So this Hera object that's going to go there has also two little CubeSats. But this time they're going to have radar and maybe try to image what's inside these asteroids, all for what, Frank, to keep it short and sweet, to hopefully defend Earth in this planetary defense project. But remember, this is the first of a long series of experiments how in good God's name would we move out a five-mile-in-diameter mm. object 
you wouldn't do it with a 1,600-pound uh, object, obviously. So it's a good start. If uh, people have questions, by the way, uh, they can give us a call at 833-969-4447. Take note of that special number, 833-969-4447. If you have questions about the DART program or why NASA is going to these great lengths, uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates is the man to answer that. Steve, apparently we do not yet know if this attempt at diverting the asteroid is successful. Why is that the case? Why don't we know? Wouldn't we have seen the asteroid, I don't know, nudge a little bit? Very good question, because the object is pretty big. It's 528 feet. Imagine this. If you looked at the Washington Monument, some 555 feet tall, imagine that object, the Washington Monument, laid down on the grass you would say that this little object, which is tiny, smaller than a little compact car, it's too early to tell right now. And I don't know. Maybe as we do this interview live, maybe they are getting some confirmation of this. But the little tiny Lycia probe has to turn its cameras on. The obvious impactor is, is destroyed with its great Draco camera. So we probably have to wait. And they're saying cautiously we may be waiting days to even get information back because the object has to go around this little orbit, you know, around this tiny moon and look for where that impactor allegedly hit. But hopefully, if it did its job, and I think it did, you may see a big plume of material. It's going to come out, hopefully. Maybe maybe we'll see something as early as sunrise in New York or as the listening audience across the country tomorrow morning, we're mm. hoping. All right. Well, it's going to be very interesting, 833-969-4447. Uh, but before I get to the calls, though, a couple other questions with respect to the the asteroids. Sure. You indicated when you were talking with John Katsimatidis that it's not just a theoretical nicety to be able to divert asteroids with man-made craft. This could have some very real-world implications in the relatively near future. What's in Earth's short-term future as it relates to possibilities of collisions with asteroids? Well, the first answer is the most questionable thing, and I don't know, but here's the answer about why I don't know, and nor do the astronomers. The objects that lurk from the direction of the sun, where we have limited amount of observational information because of the brilliance of the sun, let's say an object the size of this uh, dimorphos sneaks past the sun and is headed toward the Earth. Since we don't have planetary defense ready, not for quite a while, maybe years, who knows, maybe even 10 years, that would be disastrous. But there are objects that are out there, and I talked about this with John Katsimatidis on his show. There's an asteroid we call Apophis. It's named after the Egyptian war god, Mm. as if that's not so, you know, kind of mysterious. We're very ominous. This object is over 1,000 feet. So I say to people many times on this particular show, we've talked about it, but here we go for those that are listening to it the first time. On April 13, 2029, Apophis, the asteroid, will come within, here we go, 19,000 miles above the Earth. Now, I didn't say 19 million, 19,000. Frank, that's closer in than the geosynchronous orbital plane of 22,000 miles, where most of these, you know, the Earth is ringed by a satellite ring. We know that. You know, your sports channels, all your big HBOs, you know, you name it. And also some very vital communication satellites, banking, all kinds of stuff. So it's going to come within that zone. Now, should we be worried? Should NASA be sending out the red alert ahead of time and say, prepare, you know, for Armageddon-like doomsday? Astronomers are telling us, unless there's some really secret, you know, story going on here, the Conspiracy Theory 101, the object is not going to hit the Earth. That's a good thing. But here's the problematic thing. When it comes that close to the Earth, there's a little invisible area out there called a gravity keyhole. What's that? It's where if this asteroid goes through that little keyhole, your guess on the next orbital passage, which comes around, I believe, in 2037, and then comes around in the 2060s, let's say, theoretically, it could, who knows, maybe shape it into a different orbit. So these are things, that's probably one of the most prolific ones. But remember, asteroid impacts on the Earth are pretty prevalent. We talked about the great 65 million year ago one that's allegedly to be over five miles in diameter. I don't think that, that's the one to, that that is supposedly the dinosaur killer, right? Absolutely, and that happened again another 65 million years supposedly before that one. People don't recognize that, but the Chicxulub—that's what it's known as—or the Great Impactor—that changed the dynamics of the Earth. The last thing that the T Rex or the Brontosaurus and other 
of these type of creatures probably saw was this gigantic flaring object coming out of the sky, and the rest was toast because not only were their bodies literally pulled up into the stratosphere of the Earth, everything was pushed up, say, 50, 60,000 feet up into the atmosphere in this gigantic nuclear-type explosion, and it permeated the Earth, as Carl Sagan used to say, the dark winter which died off, you know, the photosynthesis. And it's amazing, I guess we could say, how resilient the Earth is to snap back and produce creatures like us, plants, animals, and a beautiful planet, uh, at least from the observational side. But Apophis is one. And then there was the great June 30th, 1908 event over Siberia at the time in the Soviet Union called Tunguska, in which an object, there were very few people in that area. There were farmers out there, herds of animals, lots of trees, the object, two stories, quickly. One said that it actually came over the Earth and exploded. One theory says that it came in the atmosphere, it did a detonation, but it skipped off out into space. But the residual damage was that, let's say, the entire state of Connecticut, an area that big, was leveled in a fireball where trees were blown apart like matchsticks. So these objects are real out there. So it's a start in the right direction, mm. I think, for planetary defense. Um, we're going to get to the callers in a, in a moment. But uh, so just so I understand, it is possible for some asteroids to hit the Earth without the Earth ending or all life ceasing to exist like the dinosaurs were the victims of, right? We can, we can there are some I asteroids would... we can handle. I would hope so, but if I was running for president, I wouldn't want to put that on my platform as a guarantee <laughs> because I would summarily be impeached in a very quick way, but there would be nobody around to help me to be impeached. By right? the way, um, speaking of uh, kind of a satirical look at uh, spacely consequences for modern-day yes. events, did you end up seeing Don't Look Up, which is on Netflix? You know, I haven't, and I'm always honest with you in the audience. That's one, and here's why. It's such a stupid answer, but it's true. My computer, I have one of these little Minix boxes that sit next to me. Everybody, I guess, has them. It goes and shows you different, you know, screens where you can go to movies. And unfortunately, mine does not have the right updates, so I've been lazy. Oh, uh, okay. Well, no big deal. <laughs> you I'm might be the only person in America, I feel like, that is not using my Netflix account to watch movies. <laughs> I, I, I have people watching at my Netflix that I don't, I've never even met. I, when There's rumors that they're going to crack down on password sharing. They're going to drag me out in handcuffs because there's, there's all sorts of people sharing my Netflix password. All right, we're going to get to um, Dr. Sky in just a moment and your questions for him. 833-969-4447. Two open lines. If you have questions about anything happening in space, uh, we're going to get to Jupiter in a bit and a few other things happening with Artemis. 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Spaceman, uh, Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, a WABC contributor officially, and uh, an edutainer with a great deal of expertise and a great deal of passion for the worlds of astronomy and space. All right. I have yammered on enough. We will let you get as many of your questions in as possible. Let me, and if you want to call in, you can, 833-969-4447. Let me begin with Kevin in Manhattan. Hello, Kevin. Yes. Yeah, hi, Good Kevin. Morning. What's your question? Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Okay. Good morning. Uh, my question is, is I've read in the past uh, one way they thought of deflecting asteroids was 
by shooting an object around the asteroid to change the gravitational pull. Mm -hmm. Now, if we hit this asteroid and it changes its trajectory, will it affect something when it's 100 million miles away and possibly change the trajectory of another object that would hit us huh. as Kevin, a question yeah. of unintended consequence. Kevin, you bring up a good hypothesis here, and let me also directly answer this. One of the theories before this was the use of small-yield nuclear weapons. Now people go, what? You're going to detonate a nuclear weapon in space? Well, one, it could either obliterate, obliterate excuse me, the object, which in my opinion would be a big no-no because it's simply this. You'd shotgun the thing. And instead of having one dangerous object headed down the flight path, down to your home, let's say, or here, wherever you're listening, that would send residual particles all over the place. But to answer your question more directly, there has to be a distance in space, depending on the mass and size of the object. And again, this is like the baby just beginning to crawl before it can walk. You're right, though. If they were to do some deflection at a distance that necessarily would cause the object to have, let's say, a little more play in its orbit, you have to know the right time, and I guess that formula is like maybe specially baking a cake or something. You have to use the right ingredients, the right temperature to make it right. So the jury is still out on that. But, yeah, you're right, Kevin. There could be something. If you shot this thing and hit it at a wrong time, it could then force it to go back, and gravity could change it once again. So it has to be done right, and that's something that's really rocket science that they have to figure out. But I want to also mention to everybody, and, Kevin, you've got me to think of it again, and, Frank, this object that hit, let's remind ourselves and remember, this is not a chemical explosion. It's a kinetic impact, or the simple words are, it's just like taking a hammer and hitting something. It's not an explosive device, so I want people to understand that. But, Kevin, you bring up some good points. 833-969-4447, 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, did this, did this I'm sorry. There used to be this plan where they were going to launch a big, heavy spaceship yes. and try and match orbits with the killer asteroid um, and try to uh, influence its path by the gravity of the ship. Did, yes. did this last guy just ask that question? Well, he didn't, Bill, but good morning to you. I appreciate your calls here to this show. It's always interesting to listen. As much as you know, people try to talk, it's good to be a listener. So, yes, part of his question was similar, too, to what you're talking about. But in the area of sending a spacecraft out there, it would have to be a gigantic ship. And there were even some crazy theories. Why I say crazy, they were thinking of maybe even netting a smaller size asteroid. And don't forget, even a smaller asteroid, Bill, that we're talking about, let's say one that's only 20 feet across. If that, that object, if we think back to 19, uh, 2013, over Russia in February, there was this thing over Russia called the Chelyabinsk event. And this object was only 66 feet across, made of nickel iron. And that thing came right down the highway, right down, you know, right down the express lane. And when it exploded over that area of Russia, it wasn't the asteroid damage was caused by it striking the ground. It was because of the explosion that it created and the, the acoustic shockwave. That's more dangerous. But, yeah, they had theories about trying to send a spacecraft out there, but I'm talking about maybe netting, or they were, smaller asteroids that you have enough time to say, hmm, let's tug this thing away. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello there, John. Hey, how are you, Frank? Good, John. Good morning, John. What's your question? Good morning, guys. Um, so just real quick, Frank, I got your login information from Netflix off of Reddit. Uh, you and every other, every <laughs> other person in, the, in North America. Not surprised. Well, I feel I feel jealous there. I'd like to get it also there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my question is going to be: um, Are you guys familiar with Stephen Greer? Uh, Stephen Greer, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Yeah, you said Stephen yeah. Greer. Yes. Well, yeah, I, okay. I certainly am. Yeah, and if people don't know, he's uh, he's an, um, uh, a UFOologist or a UFOlogist. Yes, exactly, so, John. Go ahead, please. Um, so he's uh, he's been one to actually disclose stuff to um, to the government. Um, he's had like he's held disclosures for Congress and stuff. Um, so he's a very believable guy. But um, I was just wondering if you guys um, believe him that uh, you know all his like things he says that uh, there is a space force, there's a there's aliens, he's met them, there's a hidden agenda. 
And if he's one to disclose stuff to Congress, shouldn't he be telling the truth then? Well, John, you know, it's very interesting. I don't know a depth about uh, Mr. Greer, but I have heard him on other shows, of course, like Coast to Coast. But the interesting part about this is there's still that thing in the back of my mind that says, of course, when we talk about UFOs, and I know, Frank, you have some great guests on about this subject all the time. But, John, I'll say this much. I still think there's something we're not being told about the whole UFO thing, don't you? And now why is the government and NASA so interested in dedicating time, money, and resources to getting to the bottom of this? Maybe there is something like that, because here's the strangest story of all, if we have just a moment mm-hmm. on this, gentlemen. This object called Oumuamua was discovered by a friend of mine named Dr. Robert Warrick out in the observatory in Hawaii back in 2017. It's an object that's now being identified as the first of the interstellar objects, meaning it didn't come from the solar system. It came from the star system called Vega, which is 25 light years away. Why am I talking about it? It's because there's great concern and controversy over how come this object came into the solar system at 100 or 200,000 miles an hour, a super hyperbolic orbit, meaning it came far from a far away. It's pancake-shaped, it's red in color, and it started to thrust itself out of the solar system faster than it came in. What does that? And there's a professor, Dr. Abby Loeb, who has a great theory on this. He believes it's an extraterrestrial messenger of some kind of spacecraft, and nobody really knows, but again, John... It's amazing what we're not being told. How about that? Uh, that's for sure. 833-969-4447. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Yeah, I think I have the same question. Um, there was this object that came through recently. Um, again, we thought it was from another solar system. Yes. Is there a way to protect against that? Not really, but good morning to you, Don. I mean, this is into all these questions. I love them, Frank. They're mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. So here's something about this, Don. There was an object that came through the that came through the sky. I can't say from the solar system that crashed or supposedly went into the ocean. I believe it was off New Guinea, and they're trying to find out where this thing is under the ocean because it may be mm-hmm. one of the first artifacts of an actual extra solar type of object. Meaning it's not from this solar system. What is it? Now, I'm not going to say it's a UFO or spacecraft, but it could be something from another star system. We need to find it, if we can, and find out what it's made of, because that's another strange mystery out there. Thank you, Don. You know, um, just to go back to the uh, the um, asteroid issue for mm-hmm. just a second, I, I sent you a, a commentary from a, a law professor by the name of John Banzoff. I don't know if you had an opportunity to read it, but uh, if for the for the edification of the audience, essentially, sure. what this um, very well respected law professor not a not an astronomer or anything like that, uh, but he's a very long time. I think he's re- technically retired now, so I think he's a professor em- emeritus at uh, George Washington University. What um, what he is suggesting is that if this works, this DART technology, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, if this works in altering the orbit of an asteroid, that maybe down the road um, that this technology could somehow be used to slightly alter the orbit of the Earth, he uses it um, as a possible solution to global warming. He he basically says that how increasing Earth's orbit by a mere 0.3 percent might balance the current global warming crisis. And he also suggests a lot of techniques that this can be used. And he cites a couple of people sure. that are more experienced in space systems engineering that basically give a little bit of credence to this idea. What's your take on the idea of whether it's for global warming purposes or any other purpose down the line, using this kind of technology to alter the orbit of the Earth, Steve? Well, first, I'm always honest. I didn't see that article, but listening to what you're saying, here's my commentary on this. Anything that could help the Earth from going through dramatic climate changes, I'm all for, whether climate change is real or the other side of the coin, whether it's not. But the reality is all weather comes from the sun. But I'm just curious as to the dynamics or what's the system of propulsion that you would have to use to move the Earth and tug it out of its orbit. Because remember, there's a problem here, and I think astronomers would get into this very deeply, and more those with celestial mechanics, meaning the understanding of gravity and the forces. We have a moon that orbits this Earth. So if we're going to change the orbit of the Earth or do something to that, how does that affect the relationship that we have with an existing and very valuable partner, 
the moon itself. So I'd like to really read that and uh, comment more when I can study it. But I don't know. That's fascinating. But I think we have to consider what the moon, how would that affect our relationship with the moon, which is our principal thing that causes tides. And we obviously depend on that here on the Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you about Jupiter. Apparently, this week is a very good day for Jupiter gazing. Uh, what, uh, what exactly can we see if we look in Jupiter's direction this week? Frank, I was tempted to use the cell phone about two hours ago. I was outside here in Phoenix with the telescope, one of the larger ones. And tonight, all across the listening audience of your show, this is so amazing, the other side of midnight. Jupiter is literally at its best. It's called opposition, and it's a good kind of thing, not like it's you know repulsive, the word opposition. It means that a planet, when it's at opposition, rises at sunset, is in the sky all night. And it so happens that Jupiter now is the closest that it will be probably for the next 60 to 80 years for us. Mm. Now, what does that mean? It's 368 million miles away. And what I was going to do, and maybe we'll do that in the future if you don't mind, sit at the telescope and look at it live. But for everybody listening, wherever you are, if you have a clear sky right now, look high up into the southern part of the sky, the big white beacon of light. It is so bright, how bright. Nothing in the sky is brighter than Jupiter other than Venus, the moon, and the sun. And when it's 368 million miles away, Frank, what was I seeing? I was seeing the red spot storm on Jupiter at about 300 times magnification in this 8-inch diameter telescope, you know, a fairly good size. And I could see the little attendant four moons sitting there, and they move if you wait a few hours. Sometimes they cross Jupiter, sometimes they go behind it, and you can see the shadow thrown by some of them as it goes onto the ball. But don't miss it, because Jupiter, even in a more like a practical sense, is like a great vacuum cleaner in the solar system. It absorbs so much of the debris that would hit the Earth if it weren't there. And no, it's not a star. I mean, that's the one of the theories, I guess, in the sequel to 2001, that it became a sun. You'd need 80 times the mass of Jupiter for it to really start fusion. But simply don't miss it. And there was something else, Frank, that I think people along the east coast of the listening area got to see on Saturday. Elon Musk launched his 30, 30, 43rd orbital launch of the SpaceX you know, uh, satellites. And these 53 satellites, there was a large, gigantic rocket plume visible all along the East Coast. I got so many emails on this. Yeah. It looked like a big jellyfish in the sky. But he's got about 3,400 of these Starlink satellites up there now. But get a load of this. The V2 satellites that he's going to develop will be larger and more effective. And with a deal with T-Mobile called Above and Beyond, these particular objects once launched into space on the new Starship rocket, maybe even as early as November, they're going to solve a problem, and I have it here in Arizona, and people have it all across the country. There's dead spots when you have a cell phone. So this system will hopefully give you no more dead zones. Wow. That will be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. So Jupiter making a very close approach uh, to yes. Earth, uh, its closest approach since 1963. And according to what Steve Cates is saying, uh, this is the closest Jupiter will be for the next 60 to 70 years. So if you want to take a look at what uh, Jupiter looks like, I guess, um, can a good set of binoculars do the trick, Steve? Absolutely. And we've got to go always to the simple part of this. The naked eye. I've even heard people say that they saw one of the moons of Jupiter with the naked eye. They must have had better than 2015 vision. But binoculars, Frank, you can go 10 by 50 pair of binoculars. You hold them steady, and you'll see these little tiny objects that look like stars. And remember, one of them is Ganymede. It's larger than the planet Mercury. So Jupiter has an amazing array of satellites, upwards of maybe 70-plus but the four you should be able to see, hopefully, with a steadily handheld pair of binoculars. Mm. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting. How long will Jupiter be close to us, close enough to see some of these Galilean moons? All throughout the rest of this year. And it's going to get spectacular because I snuck out of bed early this morning, uh, I should say yesterday morning, and I looked up in the sky and Jupiter, I saw it rise just after sunset. And then I got up around four in the morning, which is unusual for me. And I saw Jupiter all the way down in the west, and nearly overhead, another great planet is getting close. The planet Mars, it gets closest to the Earth in December. And already in the telescope, we can see polar cap activity, maybe some of the continents and small dust storms moving across Mars. So the sky is filled with beautiful things to see, but Jupiter is the king. Zeus. Oh. 
All right, 833-969-4447. We're to continue with Dr. Sky in just a moment. We'll talk about what's happening with the moon, namely our attempts to get back to the moon and what role Artemis is playing in this whole situation and where we are with Artemis. 833-969-4447. We'll try and get a few more of your questions in. Four open lines if you want to have a question for Steve Cates. We'll continue. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This was one of her earlier hits, as far as I'm concerned, her best song ever. Um, there was always a lot of controversy about how much singing on this song she actually did. As far as I am concerned, I don't know. I don't care. It, it's very catchy. Um, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran TV and radio broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. If you have a question, you're welcome to give us a call. Uh, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Steve, give us the latest on the Artemis One moon rocket. What is happening? Yes, well, Frank, I'm having a little compassion for an inanimate object called a rocket called Artemis One because it's really the little rocket that could, but it's the big rocket that can't get off the ground. Mm. Here's what's happening. With the impending hurricane, Ian, moving up through that area like the Gulf Coast and maybe Tampa and actually over the Space Center, They're now moving back. I think it just happened Monday night. They started to roll it back on the transporter, back to its house, its safe, protective little uh, enclosure called the Vehicle Assembly Building. And remember, that particular crawler is monstrous. It moved the Saturn V moon rockets. It's gotten some repairs. But it gets, Frank, the worst gas mileage that I've ever heard of anything, (laughs) whether it's diesel. It gets 40. Here we go again. It gets 41 feet to the gallon. So it has a long trek, but hopefully it'll make it safely back into the VAB, which that building was meant during the days of Werner von Braun to withstand hurricane-force winds, but let's hope for the best. But now, the update on the rocket. It's had a series of hydrogen leaks. We all know that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. Elon Musk disagrees that they should use another type of propellant in there. NASA, I didn't know this. The Congress was what authorized the fuel for that rocket. I didn't know they were rocket scientists, but here's the deal. It hopefully will have all the hydrogen leaks fixed. They had too much pressure in some of the hoses. They're supposed to put 20 PSI and 60 got in. This uh, launch was supposed to happen on the 27th. No, that's scrubbed, obviously. The October launch is probably scrubbed. And then we're maybe looking, I don't know. And when I don't know, I'm honest. We may be going into November or maybe even beyond because, as Bill Nelson says, well, we won't launch any rocket until we're ready to go, not his exact words. And rightfully so, because it's the world's most powerful rocket with 8.8 million pounds of thrust, and you want to do it right. And uh, just so everybody's clear, this Artemis One rocket, this would not be any. This would not be a manned mission to the moon. This would be sort of a, a dress rehearsal for a future mission to the moon, right? It is, and it's kind of like Apollo Eight without the people on board, but. This is interesting. It's got three anthropomorphics or dummies in there. I think one of them, uh, Campos, is named after one of the namesakes of Apollo 13. He worked as an engineer. 
And then there's two uh, the female dummies. They don't have arms and legs, but they're going to be used and strapped in to test radiation environments and testing. And then there's a little Snoopy that's going to float around there, literally Snoopy, that's going to test weightlessness and things like that. So it's an unmanned mission. But here's the interesting difference. This is going to be the farthest object ever sent out. And eventually, when it has humans on board that's ever been sent out there into space, it's going to have a very strange orbit. It goes way out, maybe 30,000 miles beyond the moon, back to around 3,000. And it's also paving a way, like a spacecraft called Capstone, to be able to check this new lunar orbit that they're going to eventually need to build what they call the Gateway Space Station. So hopefully Artemis gets off the ground. The only thing I wish, Frank, is that you, John Katsimatidis, and all of the listeners could have a special tour to get down there and know that it's going to go off. Wouldn't that be the most oh, yeah, that, thing that, to see? That would be something. Covering it live. That would be great. I, I know we've covered this before, but I think it bears repeating because it's something that I get asked about a great deal. By the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Sky. If we don't get to your questions today or if there are, if you're interested in a lot of the content that we're covering, you can check out the Dr. Sky blog at uh, ktar.com. Explain to the folks listening why, with the Apollo missions between 1969 and 1973, we were able to go to the moon's the, the moon multiple times with manned missions, land on the moon, and come back. And now, even though presumably there's been 50 years of technological advancement, why is it such a chore now to go to the moon? And something that the last three presidents, maybe the last four, have uh, said they're going to go back to the moon in a manned mission, and we haven't been able to do it. I, I think the layman yeah. might ask, why can't we just do the same thing that we did back in 1972? Well, I think the best person to ask, Frank, would be you and I asking Elon Musk. Right. Because look at all the great successes he's had. Now, not to knock NASA, I have a lot of friends there, and you know, I'm not a paid participant you know, on, on, on NASA's staff, but here's the thing. When you look at this whole rocket, it's basically using, and I hate the word used parts, but no, that's an insult to NASA. It's using remanufactured parts. The RS-25 engines on board the spacecraft are, are engines that actually ran on the previous space shuttles with improvements. Nothing wrong with that. But remember, the solid rocket motors that are attached are extended, longer versions of what we used on the shuttle. And again, I keep saying this to everybody, think of the small budget that NASA really gets. They only get 20-plus-some billion dollars. And somebody may say, wait a minute, that's a lot of money. Well, look at all these other government programs that get so many and all the, you know, the acronym three-letter agencies in the government that get, rightfully so, or whatever, the funding. So the reason, I think, in my humble opinion, is that we haven't gone back and done it with a much more regular rapidity, is the truth of the matter is, I don't know, truly, how focused we have been at NASA, because if you have a guy like Elon Musk, where did he come from? Right. And it's amazing what he's done in such a short time. Look how many repetitive launches, like this Starlink thing he just did. Sure. The booster rocket landed successfully after nine minutes of getting the spacecraft satellites into space, and it soft lands, Frank, on a ship out in the ocean. I mean, NASA hasn't done that. So let's wish them well, but they've got a lot of thinking to do about how to get these rockets to do what they're supposed to do. But I think they will. Sure. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello there, Howard. What's your question for Steve Cates? The question is, can they develop some type of netting to change the path of the asteroid? And how will it affect the temperature of the Earth and the atmosphere? Very good question, Howard. Good morning to you. Here's the situation we talked about a little before. One theory was if you had small asteroids, and I don't know the upper limit of small, it could mean 20, 30 feet across. If you could get a spacecraft out there to net the thing and use the power of a spacecraft to slowly push it away, because what you don't want to happen is any of these asteroids, especially the big ones, right, Frank, to come into the Earth's atmosphere and literally cause havoc to an already planet that's going through these changes, as many believe, with higher temperatures and all kind of weather systems gone to whack. But, Howard, that's an idea, but I don't know if that's something that's going to happen anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what happens. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. You mentioned uh, Jupiter, uh, this being a good week to look at uh, Jupiter and the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Anything else that's worth keeping an eye on in terms of uh, uh, stuff that people can observe, either with binoculars, a telescope, or even the naked eye? 
Well, yes, and let's do it fast because the moon was new the other day, meaning it doesn't shine at all, and we call it the dark of the moon. So I would go out, wherever your program is being heard all across the country, I would go out these nights, if it's clear, and look to the south. A pair of binoculars will help right after sunset. What you're going to see, Frank, is this amazing, most amazing area of the Milky Way, the core in Sagittarius. And I just did a program on one of the dinner cruises we do here on a, on a, you know, a boat here on the lake, and it's amazing. We're only 40 miles from Phoenix, but we have dark skies. So I'm saying people with binoculars, wherever you're listening, you can see the star clouds of the Milky Way. And remember, those star clouds, the core of our Milky Way is 27,000 light years away from your eye. But even more impressive, whether you're a beginner at this or you have advanced you know, knowledge of this, isn't that most amazing just to stare into the great cosmos and see it without the light of the moon? But you need dark skies. Uh- Switching gears a little bit, a Russian official recently said that a spacecraft operated by commercial entities could be a legitimate target for retaliation when used for military purposes. Said that during the U.N. uh, meeting last week. You alluded to SpaceX and Starlink. Now, we know that the SpaceX Starlink satellites have been used by Ukraine as a communications tool sure. in their fight against Russia's invasion. What would happen if Russia started to attempt to shoot down some of these SpaceX Starlink satellites? Is that a possibility? I know that Russia doesn't have a space force that we're aware of anyway. Do they have the technology or the military wherewithal to start shooting out shooting out of space some of these satellites? Absolutely. And there was a test that the Russians did, get a load of this, from the ground. It didn't even happen from space. They have a missile technology, and we have it, okay, but they have a missile that you can shoot from the ground to shoot upwards of two, 300 miles into space. That's easy. And all you could do if you really wanted to desire to cut down a communication satellite with, a, you know, the white flag waving on it saying, hey, I'm not a target, or the red, you know, the red cross flag, don't hit us. You know, we should be immune to uh, being attacked. That seriously would disrupt everything, but an even more prolific problem would be, and thank goodness we have a space force, because I'm sure with this little tiny mini space shuttle that we have up there called the X-37B, we really don't know what its purpose is, but many believe it's a space force antidote for any attacks on satellites. So here's the bottom line on that. The Russians have that capability. They could shoot anything out of the sky, but the most serious ones to all of us is the ability to knock out the GPS satellites. And Russia does not use, excuse me, China does not use our GPS technology. So that would be interesting. So if they wanted to hit us, not to give anybody any ideas, in this great, you know, war game in space type of concept, you know, like a board game you could play, Space Wars, you would probably want to take out the GPS satellites as quickly as you could because look how many of our aircraft. The B-2 bomber, I'm sure, uses internal navigation that uses what? GPS. I don't know what the backup is. But if you took it out, yes, simply, Frank, you could shoot missiles up from the ground and hit things in space. I don't know what the response would be. It probably would be nasty. Oof, I, I can imagine. By the way, I just got an SMS text message from uh, Dr. Peter Mikolos, who is uh, – uh, John Katsimatidis calls him our yes. resident genius because he Absolutely. seems to know everything about uh, medical research and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he just sent me a photo that he took of Jupiter, and it's very stunning. And he said uh, he just woke up, and thanks to (laughs) our show and Dr. Sky, he saw it, and he sent me a photo, and it's really impressive. So if people uh, take some photos, uh, and this is just from his mobile phone, I think, if people want to take some photos of Jupiter and post them in our Facebook group, I'd love to see some pictures, uh, Morano Radio fans and haters, if you want to share that on there. So that's great. Absolutely. No, Frank, I enjoy listening to Dr. Mikulos, and I listen to his health advice because he is the resident genius, and I love listening to him. And I think that's important, Doctor, as you're listening right now. One final note, we were on the Dolly Steamboat, as we call it, in Arizona, a dinner cruise boat. And when Jupiter was rising, we took a picture. This is interesting. Not only was Jupiter bright, but the light beam of Jupiter was seen in the water as if the light beam had some sort of like a you know Star Wars phaser on it or some kind of a light source, lightsaber. That's amazing, just to tell you how bright it is. So, Dr. Mikolos, thank you for uh, adding that to the show. I have this on my list for you, and I'm going to make this the last point that I cover with you. There was an article last week, 
about a new study in the journal Science that hypothesizes that a large moon destroyed by Saturn might be responsible for that planet's distinctive rings, which have sort of become the calling card of of Saturn. Saturn. That's what a new study uh, is suggesting. How do they know that, uh, Steve? And what does that mean? What can we do with this information if uh, a moon, a destroyed moon, is responsible for Saturn's rings? Simple answer is something in astronomy and space. It's called the Rocher's Limit. When an object gets too close to a parent body bigger, it will self-destruct. So it's more than likely that Saturn's rings and other rings, by the way, Jupiter has a ring, thin, Uranus has one, Neptune has one, but it's more problematic that it was a larger moon and it created what we see as one of the most beautiful symmetries in space. You see the Saturnian ring system. I just looked at that also in the telescope last evening. But here's the thing. That's the ring system is about as thin as a football field, and it's made up of so many layers of material, maybe the size of a fist of ice and stone, all the way up to the size of maybe a small SUV. But what's interesting, Frank, is they go in different rotation. The whole ring doesn't rotate as one solid body. It has differential rotation, and there's a gap in there called Cassini's division, that black gap in there. So it's more than likely that an errant satellite or a large moon got destroyed by something in science called the Rocher's Limit, where the gravity took over and literally smashed the object because of the overpowering Jupiter of the big ball, I mean of Saturn, the big ball of Saturn. Mm, Well, that is wild. Steve, as is always the case, whenever we get together, the time has just flown by. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more of you uh, around the the radio network and uh, look forward to having you again on uh, on the show sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure and privilege and honor. Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Um, and I guess, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, it's an important point, important time to mention. Keep reaching for the stars while keeping your feet on the ground. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.